Well, hey, welcome to First Church Live. So glad you guys are joining us for worship here today. We have a ton of people here on site worshiping with us at our North Garnett campus, but we also have a ton of people worshiping with us online. I'm not sure if you got the email a couple weeks ago, but I let you guys know that since we've been streaming our services online, we have had people worship with us from all 50 states and from 14 different countries. How cool is that? So if you would welcome in our online family here today. So glad you guys are joining us as well. Well, one of my favorite seasons is fall. I love the fall season. I like the weather change. I like the leaves that change. I like it being football season. Yesterday, I coached four games of U8 soccer, under eight soccer for my son, Alex. We had a tournament in Skytook, and it was a lot of fun. Came in second, by the way, in that tournament. We barely lost four to three in the championship game. But anyway, I'm not bitter at all. But it was still a fun day, and we had a blast playing soccer. But I love the fall season. My kids love it as well. And the other day, Allison, my wife, took my kids to a pumpkin patch in Tulsa. And there were different activities you could do at this pumpkin patch. And one thing was to try to rope a steer. And my son, Alex, tried to do this. And Allison caught the whole thing on video. Take a look. That yeehaw and all that kind of stuff, that's the Oklahoma coming out of him. That's not Kentucky. That's Oklahoma. You guys are corrupting him. But anyway, it was funny, and she sent that video to me, and as soon as I got it, I called him, and so I talked to him about it. I was like, hey, I got to watch your video, and he said to me on the phone, he said, Daddy, that bull didn't stand a chance. And I was like, you know, it really didn't. You took him out pretty quickly. And now that video has gone into a folder in my phone. You probably have a folder like this as well, or an album in your phone called Favorites, because I just love that video. I've laughed at it a bunch of times. You all may not find it as funny as I do, but he's mine. He's my son. And so I've put that in my favorites folder. And we have favorites in life, don't we? When it comes to a lot of different things, we have favorites when it comes to videos or pictures. We have favorites when it comes to TV shows or movies. We have favorites when it comes to books that we read, music that we listen to. Life is full of favorites, things that we go back to over and over and over again. For example, one of my favorite TV shows is the show The Office. I'm not sure if we have any Office fans in the room. Any Office fans? Let me hear you. All right. Yeah, several of you. I love The Office. No, I don't endorse everything in this show. Anytime I put a show or movie up here, I have to say that because somebody's going to find fault with it. But I don't endorse everything in the show. But I have gone back and watched this show, the episodes in the show, over and over and over again. And there are some episodes that I have watched dozens and dozens of times. I love this show. My favorite movie right now is the movie The Greatest Showman. Any Greatest Showman fans? Yeah, it's great. Now, I'm not a big musical fan most of the time, but I like this, and I have watched this movie and parts of this movie time and time again, over and over again. And I'm like that when it comes to certain books. There are certain books that I will read once a year because they're just good, and I need to go back to them for whatever reason. Certain songs I listen to over and over again, Allison will tell me that when I find a song that I like, I run it in the ground because I listen to it on repeat over and over again. We all have favorites in life that we just keep going back to. And that's true for me when it comes to Scripture as well, when it comes to the Bible. There are certain passages, certain teachings, certain stories in Scripture that I just again, and you're probably the same. And one of my favorite passages in Scripture is a passage that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. 
You've probably heard of it before. It's found in Luke chapter 15. And in my opinion, it's probably Jesus' most famous parable, his most well-known parable. You may not know Jesus that well, but you've probably heard this story. Shakespeare was inspired to write an entire play based on this parable. Rembrandt painted a famous picture that was inspired by this parable. In fact, Charles Dickens said that out of all the stories that have ever been told, this story is the greatest story. We commonly refer to it as the parable of the prodigal son. And if you've been in church at all, you've probably heard this story preached on before. And even if you haven't been in church, you've probably heard the theme of this story at least before. And you might be thinking, why are we going back to it again? Well, first of all, anytime I preach on the prodigal son, I always run out of time. Because I can never capture everything that's in this parable in one sermon. So we're going to take several weeks to break it down. But there's another reason. I also want to study this passage over the next few weeks because I believe this parable captures the heart of God probably better than any other passage in Scripture. I believe this story is a summary of God's story, of the entire story of Scripture, the meta-narrative that He is playing out for the human race. I believe this one parable captures it, and I want to look at it because I believe it reveals truly the heart and the nature and the character of our God. So whether this is your maiden voyage through the prodigal son or this is your 50th trip down memory lane, we're going to look at the prodigal son again, and I hope, it's my prayer, that it will touch your heart again because every time I go back to this parable, God teaches me something new. And this parable begins, or Jesus tells the parable, you might say, because there were some people that Jesus was hanging out with, spending time with, and the religious people, the religious elite in his day didn't like the fact that Jesus was hanging out with these people. This is how Luke chapter 15 begins. It says, now the tax collectors and the sinners, this is in quotes, the sinners were all gathering around to hear him, to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these are the religious guys, they muttered, they gossiped about him. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So here's what's going on. Jesus is hanging out with people who are not okay, and those who think they are okay are not okay with it. And the reason why they're not okay with it is because the religious people in Jesus' day have the wrong picture of God. See, their primary picture of God was that of a scorekeeper, this cosmic scorekeeper that's up in heaven, that's weighing our good and bad deeds. And so what life is all about is trying to win the approval of the scorekeeper. God's up there keeping track of how many good deeds you do and how many bad deeds you do, and the hope is that by the time you die, you've done more good deeds than bad deeds, and then you can have this relationship with him for all eternity. That's, that was the goal of life. But Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus says, no, the image you should have of the Father is not that of a scorekeeper who's just weighing your good and bad deeds, who you're trying to constantly appease and win the approval of and earn his favor and his blessing. No, that's not how you should picture God. The image you should have of God is that of a father, a father in heaven, a father who loves you, a father who relentlessly pursues you. And what I have discovered is that the way you practice your faith will be consistent with the way you picture God. If you picture God wrong, you're going to practice your faith wrong. But if you have the right image of God, the right picture of God, then it will motivate you to live the way that you were created to live. 
So what Jesus tries to do is he tries to redefine who God is. He tries to paint a new picture of God so that his audience and us today as well can understand God's true nature, his true character, his true purpose. And so he tells a few different parables, and in one of these parables, he starts off with this line. He says in Luke chapter 15, he says, There was a man who had two sons. Now, this is the beginning of the parable that we typically refer to as the parable of the prodigal son. But I want you to pay careful attention to how Jesus starts this parable. He said, this is a parable, this is a story of a man who had two sons. Not one, but two. And both of these sons were rebellious against their father. See, typically we focus on the younger son. The younger son who took his father's money and went off to a foreign country to the distant land and he blew it. He wasted all of his father's money. And then after he was left with nothing and he's feeding pigs, he comes to his senses and he comes back to his dad. And his dad doesn't have to forgive him, but his dad does forgive him and he's welcomed back home. And that's the part of the story that we typically focus on. And that's fine. We can learn a whole lot from that. And we're going to focus on on that part of the story in this series. But there's another son. Remember, Jesus says this is a story about a dad who had two sons. And there's an older brother, an older brother who stays home, who never leaves, who never abandons the family estate, who stays home. But then when his younger son comes back after wasting all of his father's money, and the father throws a party for this younger son that has returned home, the older brother He doesn't want to join the party. He stays on the outside. He crosses his arms and says, Dad, I'm not going into this party that you're throwing. I won't be a part of this celebration that you're throwing for my brother. And Jesus lets us know that's just as rebellious as the younger son who ran away. See, really, this isn't the story of just one prodigal son. It's the story of two prodigal sons. And that's why some people have referred to this passage as the parable of the lost sons, plural, two sons. We can learn from both of their examples. But in recent years, I've started to call this parable something else. Because even though we can learn a lot from the two sons, I don't think either of the two sons were the main character of this parable. Look back at what Jesus says. Look back at the opening line of this parable. Look at what he says. He says, there was a man who had two sons. Who's the subject of this sentence? It's not the sons. It's the man, it's the dad, it's the father. Who's the subject of this parable? It's the man who had two sons. Who's the primary character of this story? It's the father who had two sons. See, this parable is all about the father. Why? Because Jesus, remember, is trying to paint for us a new picture of who God is. He's trying to reveal to us God's true character and nature and purpose. And so this story is all about the father. And I want you to think about it for a second. I mean, if you have this rebellious younger son who runs off to the distant land and wastes all of his dad's money on, you know, prostitutes and partying, and then he comes back home and the dad says, nope, you're not welcome back in my house. You're still not allowed to live on my estate. You go and fend for yourself. Well, we have a pretty bad story, don't we? It's, it's not a great story. And what, happened, what would happen if the dad went out to the older brother who refused to join in the party? And he told his older brother, just go ahead and get out. If you're not going to join in the party that I'm throwing, just go ahead and get out, leave, get off my estate. Again, we don't have a great story, do we? The reason why this story is so powerful is because of the father. So that's why here in recent years, I've started to refer to this parable as the parable of a father's relentless love. Because this story is all about a dad who can't let his kids go. This is a story 
that is all about a father who loves his kids even when his kids don't love him, who forgive his kids, forgives his kids even when they don't deserve it, who loves his kids even when his kids don't return that love. This is a parable, this is a story all about a father's relentless love. And it lets us know that we have a father who always loves us. So Jesus says this is a parable about a dad, a father, who has two sons. And one day, as we read on in this passage, one day the younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he, the dad, divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered, wasted his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Now, here's what you need to understand what's taking place here. In this first century world, the oldest son in a family would get two-thirds of the father's estate. We get two-thirds of the inheritance upon the father's death. And then the younger sons would divide up the other one-third. In this parable, there's only two sons, an older son and a younger son. So the older boy is going to get two-thirds of his father's estate, and the younger son is going to get one-third of his father's estate. But they would be given that inheritance upon the father's death. This dad isn't dead yet. Apparently, he's still in pretty good health. He isn't dead yet, and yet his younger boy comes to him and says, Dad, I want you to liquidate all of your assets and give me my part. In other words, he's telling his dad, Dad, I wish you were dead. Dad, I love what you can do for me more than I love you. I love your money more than I love you. I love your stuff more than I love you. I love what you can do for me more than I love you. And before we shake our head at this younger boy, haven't we all treated God like this before? I have. Maybe I haven't said it just like this, but there have been seasons, there have been moments in my life where I've basically lived a life that said, God, I love what you can do for me more than I actually love you. That's how this younger son is treating his dad. And so the father responds. And how does this father respond? This father doesn't respond by saying, absolutely not. I'm not going to do this. He could have. In fact, he could have had this boy punished. He could have had this boy beaten. He could have had him thrown in jail. He even could have had this boy stoned to death for his rebellion. But that's not what this father does. That's what any typical Jewish dad in this day and age would have done. But Jesus is letting us know this dad is different because this dad represents God. And God is a different type of father, a father who's unlike the fathers that they were used to in their culture. You see, everybody in this community would have shunned a boy like this. They would have kept their distance from him. They would have declared him dead to the family, dead to their entire community. They would have wanted to have nothing to do with him. You know why? Because you know what this boy ends up doing? Not only does he disrespect his dad, and this is an ultimate sign of disrespect, saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Not only does he do that, he also ends up selling the land. See, he's got to sell the land. You know why? Because you can't buy beer with land. You can't buy prostitutes with land. You need cash. 
So he ends up selling his one-third of the estate to get some cash to go off to a distant country, to go to the border and blow it all. And what you need to understand that in this world, no Jewish boy would have done that. See, a family got their identity from their land. You lived on your family land for generations, generation after generation after generation lived on this land. And this is the promised land. This is the land that God thousands of years ago promised to his people, and now you're living on it. You protected this land. You guarded this land. You fought for this land. You took care of this land. And you thanked God every single day for this land. And yet this younger son sells his part of it and goes off and wastes the money partying in the far country. In fact, this is how Jesus words it in Luke 15, verse 13. He says, he set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. That word living is actually where we get our word biography from. from. So basically what Jesus here is saying is, this guy set off to write a wild story for himself. And that's exactly what he did. He set off to write a wild story for himself. And just imagine what this dad is thinking. I mean, this is what the boy has basically told his dad. He's basically telling his dad, Dad, I wish you were out of the way so I could do my own thing. I wish you were dead. I wish you were out of the picture so I could just do my own thing. And you might be thinking, why did the dad let him go? Why did the dad divide up the property? Why did he let him go? Because this dad knew something. This dad knew that only by the boy wanting to be there would his relationship with his son be meaningful. To force his son to live there, their relationship would never be meaningful. Only by the son wanting a relationship with his dad would his relationship with him be meaningful. And so... The father lets him go. This boy gets it in his head that there's a better life for him outside of the father's estate. There's something more for him that his father is keeping from him. He starts to get it in his head that his father doesn't have his best interest at heart. And here's the thing. When you start to think that there's something more for you outside of God's will, you'll stop at nothing to get it. And that's exactly what this boy does. And some of you, I bet, have been there. I've been there. Maybe some of you are there right now. And I just wonder, have you ever considered this question? What does God want from my life? Not what do you want for your life or what do other people want for your life, but have you ever asked the question, what does God want out of my life? What does God want for my life? What's the goal that God wants me to aim for? What's the target that God wants me to shoot for? What is it that God wants for my life? Have you ever asked that question? What is it that God really wants me to have out of this life? I'm not sure if you've ever seen one of these before, but it's a giant target, and there's some, you know, fake soccer balls that are Velcro you can throw at it. You can try to hit this bullseye here, and the point is to try to kick the ball in. Maybe you throw it if that's how you want to play it. But I remember last year for our carnival that we threw during our You're Invited series, if you guys remember, we threw a big carnival for our community. We had one of these set up, but it was about five times this size, and it was real-size soccer balls. And I remember my son Alex and I tried it out, and I tried it first and did pretty well, and then he got up 
up to attempt it. And when he did, now mind you, this thing was like five times this size. He missed the target altogether. Like he kicked it way over top of the, of the target. So I said, okay, buddy, try it again. So he tried it again the next time. He went far right. He missed it again. I thought, this target is huge. How are you missing this target over and over again? So I watched him. And every time that he would get ready to kick the soccer ball, he was looking down, not at the target. He was focused on the ground, focused on his foot, focused on the ball, whatever. But he never looked at the target to see where it was. And so over and over again, he missed. And finally, I said, Alex, buddy, you got to look at where you're aiming. you got to look at the target. Look at the center of the target and aim there. So let me ask you, what's at the center of God's target for your life? What does he really want for you? Where is it that God wants you to be? Where is he asking you to aim your life at? Well, I'll tell you, at the center of God's target, his goal for your life, it's him. It's a relationship with him, a loving relationship with him. And here's the thing, when you experience his love, when you live in this loving relationship with him, when you hit that, what ends up happening is you get a gift And it's the gift of freedom. Because you get to freely live the life that God created you to live. Now that's not how we often picture God. We often picture God like a scorekeeper too. Who's just trying to give us a bunch of rules and fence us in. Not give us freedom. But that's not what God wants for our lives. God truly wants for us to live free. To live free. To live the life he designed for us to live. He created us to live. God doesn't want us to live enslaved to the things of this world. To the sin of this world. To the passions of this world. To the temptations of this world. To the hurt of this world. To the pain of this world. He doesn't want us to be enslaved to our fears and our anxieties. And our worries and our stresses and our shame and our guilt. He doesn't want for us to feel enslaved to all these things and enslave so many people in the world around us. He wants to set us free so that we can live the life that he created us to live. In fact, that's one of the primary reasons why Jesus came. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 8. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. In other words, do what I'm telling you to do. Live the life I'm asking you to live. And then he says, and if you do this, you will know the truth And the truth will set you what? Free. Jesus came to set us free. He came to give us freedom so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, enslaved to the things that have such power over so many people in this world. He came to set us free. But that's not often how we picture God. We often picture God as one who wants to fence us in, not set us free. And so what we do is we look outside of God's target and we think, there's got to be something better out there. That's where true freedom is. And so we move further and further and further away from God's target for, for our lives. And what ends up happening is we just feel more and more enslaved. The further we get from God, the more enslaved we feel. See, that's why we need to always keep in mind that God's goal for us is to have real and lasting freedom. Because if we lose sight of this, if we forget this, what's going to end up happening is we're going to end up believing lies. See, Jesus says that the truth will set us free, but the opposite of that is also true. And you've probably heard me say this before. If the truth will set us free, then lies will hold us hostage. And this world likes to call out to us and say, hey, come out here with us. And then you'll really start to live. Then you'll really have freedom. Then you'll really be who you want to be. And so we get further and further away from 
God's target. And we end up just feeling more and more enslaved. And there's a word that the Bible uses to describe life outside of God's target. And it's the word sin. In fact, in Greek, it's an archery term. And the word sin literally means missing the mark. An archery term. Missing the target. Missing the goal. Missing out on what you were created for. And when you do veer off track and you start to look for something outside of the life that God wants you to live, at first it seems fun. At first it seems exciting because it's different. And you think, hey, this is what I should be living for. And it might be fun at first, but you just start to feel more and more enslaved. Enslaved by your poor choices enslaved by your spiritual bankruptcy, enslaved by your spiritual poverty, enslaved by your regret, your shame, your emptiness. And that was the case for the prodigal son. Let's read on the passage. It says that there was a severe famine in that whole country, this distant land that he's living in, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. In other words, he sold himself as a slave to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. No one gave him anything. Let me ask about that. I mean, think about that. Where have all of his friends gone? All these people that he was partying with. All these people that he was having a good time with. What about all those ladies that he was hanging out with? What happened to all of his newfound friends in, the, in this distant land? No one would help him out. No one gave him anything. You know why? Those people really didn't care about him. Those people really didn't love him. It was all fake. It was all phony. It was all temporary. And so this younger son starts to realize, hey, I have, I've missed it. I have given up everything, and I've ended up with nothing. And this is a lesson that I had to learn the hard way. I had to learn that when we try to get outside of God what we can only get from him, we end up with nothing. We end up empty, enslaved. And that's what this boy starts to realize. He gave up everything in order to have nothing. And so as he is feeding pigs in this distant land far away from his dad, he remembers the life he used to have. And he starts to realize, hey, what I've been looking for all along is what I had with my dad. What I've been searching for is what I had originally, and I gave all that up. And so he comes to his senses, and he decides to go back home, to go back and see his dad again. And he's not sure if his dad's going to welcome him back or not, but he starts that long journey back home. And as he walks through the streets of his village, of his community, I'm sure all the locals were there watching him, and they're crossing their arms and shaking their heads and giving him nasty looks and this boy is dirty, and he's filthy, and he stinks, and he's flat broke. He doesn't have a dime to his name. And they're all shaking their heads saying, how dare he come back home? How dare he show his face around here again? How dare he come back after what he did to his dad, after how he embarrassed his family like that? How dare he come back home? And then finally, this boy makes it to his father's estate. And as he starts to get closer to the house... His dad's home. And his dad looks out the kitchen window and 
There he sees his son coming in the distance. You know what Jesus says this dad does? This dad didn't have to welcome him back. But Jesus says this dad jumps up and runs to his son. See, here's the thing. Grown men, dignified men in the ancient world did not run in public. Slaves ran. Children ran. Dignified men did not run in public because of the garments that they wore, you might expose yourself. But this dad doesn't care. He doesn't care what anyone else thinks of him. He doesn't care about himself in this moment. He only cares that his son is back home. And so he takes off running towards his boy. And when he gets to his son, Jesus says that the dad kisses his son. And in the Greek, that word kiss is in the ongoing tense, meaning he kissed him and he kissed him and he kissed him over and over and over again. Side note, dad's in the room today. Dad's watching online. Show affection to your kids. They need it. And this dad kisses his son over and over and over again. And then the dad calls for his servants and he says, bring a robe out, put it on him. My son needs some new clothes. Put a ring on his finger. Put my ring on his finger because I'm riding him back into the wheel. He is my son again. Put sandals on this boy's feet because only slaves go without shoes. Put shoes back on his feet. I want to declare to the entire world that this son of mine is alive in my presence and I am welcoming him back home. And then the father turns to his servants and he says this. I love this line. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This dad throws a party in his son's name. And here's the thing. Those listening to this parable for the very first time, would have been shocked at this response. No first century dad would have done this. No first century Jewish father would have done this. They would not have accepted this son back. But Jesus is letting us know that God is a different type of father. He's letting us know that we have a dad, we have a father in heaven who loves to celebrate his kids. That no matter what you've done, or where you've been, or who you've been with. We have a father who loves to celebrate his kids. I mentioned earlier that my son Alex is playing soccer right now. And uh, he's, I'm going to brag a little bit on him because he's mine and I can, I'm partial, but he's pretty good at soccer. I mean, I, I like to watch him play, and I'm proud of him because of that, but that's not the only reason why I'm proud of him. I'm proud of him because he's mine. And he has scored in just about every game we've had. But there was one game not too long ago that Alex didn't score. And he was all upset after the game. He came off the field and he was crying because he didn't score. And I didn't know why he was crying. I thought maybe he got hurt or something. I didn't realize it. And so I looked at him and I said, buddy, what's the matter? And he said, I didn't score this game. I was like, hey, it's okay. You still played hard. You still played well. It's fine. No big deal. And he looked at me and said, but daddy, I wanted to make you proud. And in that moment... I thought, I don't need to let this pass. And I got down on one knee, and I looked at Alex in the eye, and I said, buddy, I want to let you know something. I'm not proud of you because you score goals. I'm not proud of you because you even play soccer. I don't love you because you score goals or because you play soccer. I love you because you're mine. 
And it doesn't matter if you never score a goal again. It doesn't matter if you never play soccer again. It doesn't matter what you do. I will always love you because you are mine. And I said, I don't ever want you to forget that. And he looked at me and he said, Dad, why are you getting so serious? Like he didn't understand at all why I was so passionate about this. But I didn't want him to miss this. I didn't want him to forget that moment. Because I don't love Alex. I don't love Addie because of what they achieve or their successes in life or anything like that. I love them because they are mine. And we have a Father in heaven who loves us because we are His. And He loves us even when we sin, even when we mess up, even when we run from Him. He still loves us. And when we return to come back home to Him, He always is ready to celebrate us. Look what Jesus says in Luke 15. He says, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In other words, when you repent, when you turn to come back home, God throws a party for you. There is a party in heaven every single time somebody is baptized, every single time somebody turns back to God. And I love this word repent because it literally means to turn, to come back. Dare we say to come back home? It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you've been with. It doesn't matter what's been done to you. When you turn to come back home, we have a father who's ready to celebrate you, who's already throwing a party for you. We need to remember we have a father who's not mad at us, who's not angry at us, who doesn't hate us, who's not, who hasn't abandoned us. We have a father who loves us and who just desperately wants us back home. And we're going to talk more about that as we continue on in this series and we break down this parable. There's a lot more in this passage. But before we wrap it up today and before we dismiss and go home, there's one other thought that I want to leave you with. I just want to ask a question. Have you ever thought about what initially started the son's journey back home? You might say, well, because he was stuck feeding pigs and he didn't want to do that anymore. He wanted to get out of the pigsty. Well, that's part of it. You might say, well, he, all of his friends abandoned him in the distant country and he had no one left. Well, that's part of it. It might have been because, you know, nobody would take care of him and whatever else. Yeah, that's part of it. But there's one little detail that I've often missed. And I studied this passage for years and missed this little detail, but I think it's very important. Look back at the passage again and look at what it says. It says, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need I missed that for years that there was a famine in the land I mean I read it it was there and I kind of knew it but I just thought that was an insignificant detail that there was a famine in the land but yet I think that may be more important than what we've given it credit for when I was doing my doctoral studies at Lincoln Christian Seminary I had a professor that said that he was teaching on the parable of the prodigal son in a third world country. And after he was done teaching on it, he asked them the question, what stood out to you the most in this parable? And you know what they all said? That there was a famine in the land. 
He said he had taught on the parable of the prodigal son to Americans, and he had asked them the same question, and nobody pointed out the famine. They pointed out the other stuff, but nobody pointed out the famine. But yet the majority of people in this third world country pointed out that there was a famine in the land. You know why? Because those people knew what it was like to experience a famine. Those people knew what it was like on a regular basis to go without food. And when you experience famine after famine after famine, you learn how to fully and completely depend on God. It's interesting to me that the famine is what got everything started for this boy to come back home. We would have loved for this boy to have just woke up one day after he had been partying all night and he's hung over the next morning and he's laying in bed beside a girl he barely even knows and says, this is a mess. I have wasted my life. I have really blown it. I have sinned against heaven and against God and against my father and I need to change some things so I need to go back home and repent. We would have loved it if that's how the story worked out. But that's not what happened. It took an outside force. It took a famine for this boy to find freedom. And here's the thing. In our culture today, we're not experiencing a famine. But we are experiencing a pandemic. Our world is different than it's ever been, at least in our lifetimes. And I'm not saying that God caused the pandemic. I don't believe he did. But I think he allows it to happen so he can use it. And I've heard more people tell me more people all the time will tell me that this pandemic has woke them up, woken them up to, to God and how they need to fully depend on him in a way like they haven't in the past. And I wonder, what is it going to take for you to wake up and realize that you really need him, that what you're looking for isn't outside the target somewhere, but it's at home with him? What's it going to take for you to wake up don't miss this season that we're in. Don't miss what God is doing right now because today you can start your journey back home. It took a famine for this boy to find freedom. What's it going to take for you? Because when you do start your journey back home, there'll be a party waiting for you that you don't want to miss. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for today and this time we had to open up your word and study it. And Father, I just pray that we don't miss what you're doing in this season. Yeah, there's not a famine in the land, but there's a pandemic. May you use this horrible time where people are sick and people are losing their common freedoms and people are in awkward situations. May you use this horrible time to wake this nation up, to wake us up to our need for you. Because all this stuff that we used to put such confidence in, it's a false God that will never satisfy us. God, may we focus on what really matters. May we aim our lives at the target that you want us to hit and that's a relationship with you and when we do we will experience freedom like we've never experienced before father we know you are calling us home may we turn home today turn for home today and come and live the life that you created us to live because we know you are a father who loves to celebrate your kids in the name of jesus i pray amen